Welcome to Belonging and Becoming, a podcast featuring Asbury University President, Dr. Kevin Brown. He'll help us consider life, learning, and virtue in today's complex world. Our hope is that this conversation will enrich you in your life journey. The coronavirus has changed the travel patterns for millions of us. For Asbury University President Dr. Kevin Brown, that's meant less opportunity to meet with alumni and friends from around the world. So one of our goals for this Belonging and Becoming podcast is to give you a chance to grab some coffee or tea and sit down for a conversation with Dr. Brown. On today's episode, we'll hear about the power of a book and a word to change someone's life. We'll also hear what motivates Dr. Brown as he walks onto Asbury's campus each day. To come beside students and partner with them and attempt to meaningfully and responsibly and faithfully shape how they think about themselves and their future and what God wants to do in their life. So on my best day, that is front and center motivation for being on a college campus. I'm Doug Walker, professor of media communication here at Asbury. I'll be your host as we take this opportunity now to get to know more about the life story of Asbury President, Dr. Kevin Brown, on today's episode of Belonging and Becoming. It's great to have you here with me today, Dr. Brown. Uh, And I know that despite your incredibly busy schedule, you've been looking forward to this time, or at least you've given me the impression that you have been looking forward to it. Oh, I'm very much looking forward to the time. Thank you. Excited to do this. Well, I know a number of our grads that I've written to have said, oh, I just can't wait to get an opportunity to listen. So we're glad to have this chance to sit down together. And over the course of the coming year, we're planning on conversations about the future of Christian higher education, Yes, why virtue and virtuous life matters, and then we'll, along the way, we'll talk about some amazing Asbury grads as well. Yes, yes. But today, we've got two goals in mind. Uh, first, I'll ask Dr. Brown to tell us about the start of the semester that's unlike any other <laughs> in Asbury's history, and then we'll take the time to hear more about the personal path that brought you here to Asbury. So first, uh, can you tell us how Asbury's dealing with the pandemic as school is underway now for the fall semester? Yes, I've prefaced this question with others that there really is no global pandemic playbook that an administrator can pull off the shelf and say, okay, now we do ABC. Really, it's been so exciting to see students on our campus because it's the culmination of five months of planning. I, I think the, the posture within that planning is not necessarily how do we avoid any of our students being exposed or getting the virus. We certainly do want to avoid that. But if a student were to contract the virus or be exposed, how do we make sure that they are protected, that they have educational continuity, but at the same time, don't feel ostracized from the rest of the community. So we're prioritizing the community and its safety and health. But at the same time, uh, we're recognizing that this is a reality. And we, we have standards that we're putting in place to make sure we can have a semester. So the planning has really been built around that philosophy, knowing that we're not going to avoid this. We're not uh, like Disney that's created the bubble, you know, or something like that. But certainly we can make sure that there is a process, there's a system, there are a set of practices that elevate safety 
and prioritize the support and care for all of our students and that we, again, have a plan for a student if they were to contract the virus or if they were exposed. Now, have you, in your runs back and forth across campus this week, had any particularly interesting conversations with students that you might be able to share? Yeah, I, it's been great to, to see students, and many have pulled me aside and just asked how I'm doing, which is uh, just very, very moving and meaningful to me, uh, getting to meet our new students, where they're from, why they chose Asbury. And what those interactions have demonstrated to me is that even though our semester is highly modified right now, we are still going to have all the fullness of an Asbury experience. We're still social. Uh, we, we've been more deliberate about using the expression physical distance and not social distance. We still want to be socially proximate to one another, uh, engaging and interacting. We're just physically six feet apart. Uh, so we're still socially engaging. We are having chapel, our classroom experiences uh, are as edifying as they've ever been. Uh, the other campus activities that we've had, uh, sporting events, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we are having a semester. It's just modified. It looks different, uh, but I'm excited. We're going to switch directions now because we got some input from people that they can't wait. A number of people said, I can't wait to meet Dr. Brown, mm. uh, you know, to have that opportunity. Obviously, a number of them would have met you in June when we would normally have yes. so many alumni back on campus, uh, but they didn't have that opportunity. So they're looking forward to this as being one opportunity to get a chance to get to know you a little bit better. So this first episode <laughs> of the podcast, we're basically going to talk a little bit about your life and some of your background that led up to this point. Let's uh, start at the beginning. Uh, if we look back to your early years, could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what your family life was like in those early years? Sure. I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, that, that is the correct way to pronounce that. I had a great experience there. My father taught at the University of Louisville. My uh, mother worked in southern Indiana in the school system, the Clark County school system. And I'm the youngest of three. Uh, so I have two older sisters, one who lives in Louisville in J-Town and the other who went to college at Cornell and we say just never came back. Uh, she's kind of bounced around the Northeast, uh, D.C. and New York, and now her and her husband and their kids live in Montclair, New Jersey. Um, but I really had a, a fantastic experience growing up. Louisville is a, a wonderful place, and um, one of the things I, I love about Wilmore, I often say, is that if I go 15 minutes south, I'm in Shaker Village, and 15 minutes north, and I'm in Lexington, uh, the second largest city in the state. And Louisville reminded me of that a lot. It was not difficult to get into the country and uh, fish or hike or do these exciting things, but uh, it also was not difficult to go into the city. My parents have a fascinating background. My mother is from eastern Kentucky and grew up on a farm in an area most people are unfamiliar with, Oneida, Kentucky. And my father grew up in Monticello, Indiana, and also had an agricultural family. And so they both met at Indiana University. Um, they both got their doctorates there. And so they, they bring a very interesting background. They're, they're very educated. Um, they have uh, kind of the, the, this agricultural background, and they are individuals that have always valued education. I grew up in a very loving home, a very Christian home. 
I was baptized at Southeast Christian Church uh, back when it had maybe three or four hundred people. It's a little bit bigger now. It's north of 10,000, I know that much, so it's very large. And I went to the Christian Academy of Louisville, and so K through 12, when I was there, uh, must have been 300 people or so. So I went to Christian Academy through eighth grade, and I graduated from Manual High School. I went to Manual. Uh, it's in downtown Louisville, right across the street from where my dad worked at the University of Louisville, and really had a fantastic experience there. It's one of the most diverse environments I've ever been in. And so exposed me to a lot of different people and different groups and different experiences. And that was a real blessing. It was very different from Christian Academy, uh, but both uh, offered their own environments, uh, both to be educated, but also to get to know people. And that was a blessing. So I think all those experiences uh, shaped me as I, I went off to college. Um, but I've always been so thankful for my family, and they continue to be incredible sources of inspiration and support today. Now, on a little lighter note, one of the faculty I talked to said, growing up, what was your favorite game? Oh, boy. Well, uh, that depends if it was a game outside or I do remember when Nintendo came out and my sister and I actually would wake up before school to play Super Mario Brothers. We were so... Because before then was Atari and uh, some of the, the Atari games. I, I would imagine most listeners would be familiar with Atari, but uh, they, they are not the uh, visual games that are available today. Uh, but interestingly, I think my parents were really frustrated that we spent so much time uh, or were so interested in this. So uh, my dad at one point just put the Nintendo in his closet as a not-so-subtle nudge to go outside and play, and uh, that was fine by me. So we played games like that. I never really got into cards, uh, but I was, I was a basketball player. I loved playing basketball in our neighborhood, and I was blessed to grow up in a neighborhood with a lot of kids, and so... Uh, we would play sports like basketball or uh, capture the flag, or we would just find something to do. I've really appreciated being in a neighborhood with people my age to, to grow up and be creative and uh, play sports and learn to be competitive, but learn to balance that with relationships as well. So if there was a game I would elevate above the others, it's basketball. <laughs> and did you play basketball in high school then? I did. I played through middle school and then high school and had the opportunity to play in college as well. It was a very strange experience when it was over in college because this thing that you've committed so much of your life to and so much of your identity has been formed around abruptly ends. And if anything, I think it revealed some idolatry in my life that I had been so consumed and so identified uh, with a sport that when it was taken away, there's, there's a bit of who am I and how do I think about myself? Uh, you went from high school in Louisville then to Indianapolis, University of Indianapolis for college? I did, yes. I had a fantastic experience at the University of Indianapolis, uh, made some, some great friends, and perhaps most importantly, I met my wife there. And so Maria ran track and cross country for the University of Indianapolis. She actually held the record for the 1500 for a significant period of time. Uh, but we learned that several years ago, someone else broke it, uh, amazingly. How did you meet? So Maria actually, 
I, th- I think I can say this, had a, had a crush on one of my friends. And he did not reciprocate uh, the, the same feelings. And so there was some event at another dorm, and I got to know her and talk to her and thought, wow, she's really neat. And um, later that week, I believe, we ran into each other in the library. And uh, in a not-so-subtle way, I just found ways to keep talking to her and uh, eventually uh, asked her out. Uh, we went to the Indiana Repertory Theater to watch Dickens' Christmas Story. And unfortunately, um, I refer to it almost as a bait-and-switch because that cost a lot of money, and I was dressed up, but I didn't have any money as a college student, and so every date thereafter was uh, maybe a Krispy Kreme donut or something like that uh, because I couldn't afford it. But luckily, she wanted to keep going out with me, and um, things just grew and developed from there. When were you married, then? Was it uh, after school or during school? It was after school. I immediately started a master's of business once I graduated, and Maria was two years behind me. I had redshirted basketball a year, so as I went into uh, graduate school, I got to play another year of basketball, and they were going to pay for grad school, which was nice. And so the year after that, I finished, and Maria graduated um, at that time with her bachelor's and that June we were married. Uh, So that was back in 2002. One of the books I read a a number of years ago, it might have been Gary Thomas, but I can't remember for sure, wrote wrote about marriage. And he says that uh, one of the reasons God gave us marriage is to teach us about ourselves and our own weaknesses. And I'm curious, through your relationship with Maria, we won't necessarily go into the weaknesses, but I am curious what you've learned in that, you know, the relationship and the marriage process that's helped you in other areas, even stepping into the role of president. One of the things that I've shared with students a lot that I learned early on in my marriage, Maria and I were having a disagreement, really an argument. And in the middle of that, she paused and looked at me and said, do you like me? And I responded, that's a silly question. You know that I love you. And she said, that's not what I asked. She said, do you like me? And her point was well taken. Not simply, yes, I love her. I'm committed to her. Um, I'm committed to all the norms of a marriage. But do I also like being around her? And I've shared that with students that love, love is a commitment. And it requires trust and self-giving love and these, these other norms of sacrifice but it really is important to like the person that you're with as well and to enjoy being around them and to trust them and to see them as a confidant. And I love Maria, but I like her too. And if there's something good in my life or there's something bad in my life, uh, my, my joys and my victories or uh, those days where I just want to cry and uh, feel defeated She's the first person I want to share that with. Uh, So I love Maria, but I like her as well. And I think that that is very important for students as they think about relationships. And certainly as many relationships uh, tend to follow how how they are depicted uh, through various media channels or whatnot that um, are romanticized or characterized in ways that just do not reflect reality and do not reflect the nature 
and the hard work uh, that goes into a relationship. There's a, a quote by Yosef Pieper where, to paraphrase him, he says, to love someone is not to desire them. And that is, I think, one of the, the common misconceptions that we see through the media. To love someone is not to desire them, Pieper says, but it's to desire something for them. And this is really Aquinas' idea of love, uh, to, to will the good of another. And so these, a marriage has taught me this more than anything about love and care and affection. And so it's very natural uh, to seek to take that into these other contexts. Uh, to, when I say that we are student-centric or when I'm in a relationship with other people on campus, do I will their good? Do I will the good of students? Um, am I putting their, um, their, their considerations before myself? So you were at the University of Indianapolis, you got your undergraduate degree, then you worked on your MBA. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you start considering banking? So what, what's the path that took you into the banking world? Banking was something that really intrigued me because it's very much a scoreboard mentality. Uh, so growing up as an athlete, and uh, athletes are very mindful of the scoreboard, um, did I do the things necessary to win? And what does it mean to win? And what are those those indicators that tell you that you're you're playing the sport well? So banking, no one would ever leave. No one would ever go home ambiguous about, did I have a good day or did I do what I needed to do? Uh, there was a very clear scoreboard. And there was something that I liked about that black and white nature. But it also was very formative for me. Um, I worked for Wells Fargo Bank for a while, and I was there during the financial crisis, uh, which really raised a significant amount of ethical issues. And at one point, I knew that I wanted to be in education, and I was just convinced that uh, I should go and study theology somewhere and then try to be a theologian or a pastor or something like that. And luckily, I had some women and men in my life who said, well, why wouldn't you take that conception into the business world, whether through teaching or continuing to work? And the more, I, more time I spent in banking, the more I realized there are a lot of spaces and places uh, where that industry requires very much a theological appraisal or a philosophical appraisal of what we do and why we do it. William Blake talks about seeing through the eye, not seeing with the eye, but through it, seeing through it with a conscience and with character, with a, with a mind, with a biblical mindset, uh, with a heart. And so this very much was uh, an opportunity. So I got excited about that, but was even more excited about the idea of teaching business with this lens and being able to provide some theological insight into how we think about our commercial activity. At some point, you and Maria must have had this discussion about uh, making this big move away from business world into graduate studies. What was that process like for you? Well, everyone in my family was in education. And so to go into business, that made me feel a bit like uh, the black sheep of the family. Um, however, I, I had known early on, in fact, I have a very vivid memory of my first year of marriage, uh, telling my wife that, boy, if I could do anything, it would be to teach. I didn't know who and I didn't know where, uh, and I actually didn't know what, but I loved teaching. And she said, well, then teach. Uh, go do that. 
And I had an almost identical conversation with my parents. Uh, my father was a professor and uh, telling him that, boy, if, if I could teach, that would be exciting. And they said, we'll teach. Uh, do the things necessary. It'll be hard work, but, but if that's what you want to do, that's what you should do. Another experience that, that is worth sharing related to that journey, when I was in college, uh, Maria and I began to date, and I had visit, visited her home a few times. Her father was a pastor for 26 years and then went on to be the president at World Gospel Mission. And during one of those Sundays where I went to visit her in northern Indiana, uh, her father preached, and uh, then we would have these these long discussions at their dinner table in the parsonage next door. Sometime around then, I remember Maria came back home. She'd been home for the weekend, and she gave me a book. And it was actually a book by Ravi Zacharias, Jesus Among Other Gods. And I said, you know, what's this? And she said, uh, my parents bought this for you. And I said, why? And she said, well, they said you're a thinker and that you would enjoy this book. That was a very important moment. I had never fashioned myself as um, unintelligent, but I had never conceived of myself as a thinker. That was not an identity I'd considered. As I had said earlier, it was very bound up in basketball and some of these other things. And so I read that book like a thinker, and I still have it to this day. Half the book is underlined, and I have notes in the margins, and I would tell people about it. I got enthusiastic. And that really changed a lot for me. Uh, I was involved in a Bible study. I had mentors at that time, and things were just changing in my life. Fast forward many years, when I finished my PhD at the University of Glasgow, one of the first letters that I wrote were to Maria's parents, Hubert and Sarah. And uh, I said, I want you to know I have a PhD today because you called me a word years ago. You called me a thinker. And at that point, I was teaching, but I was committed to conferring a healthy and authentic identity upon students, uh, just based on my own experience, how amazing it was that a person can call you a title, can name something in you, and how it can fundamentally alter how you understand yourself and your life direction. When I began to teach in 2009, uh, I had a lot of aspirations, but the core motivation was that I was changed in this time in college, fundamentally changed. And so I want to partner with and lock arms with our students today, that 18 to 22-year-old cohort uh, who are adults, uh, but at the same time, uh, I heard someone say recently, wet concrete. Uh, so they're still processing, they're still forming, they're still thinking uh, they're, they're considering their purpose and their identity and their directionality. They're thinking about their future. And what a beautiful and wonderful time to come beside students and partner with them and attempt to meaningfully and responsibly and faithfully shape how they think about themselves and their future and what God wants to do in their life. Uh, so on my best day, that is uh, front and center motivation for being on a college campus. And that's a powerful reminder, I think, to each of us of the power of words and the yes. power of the choice of yes. our words as well. So, yeah, appreciate that very much. You mentioned that you ended up in Scotland working on your degree, which is uh, not the normal, at least, after your 
Well, what, Indiana University had been kind of the family pattern, so what took you to Scotland? Yes, there was a, a program at St. Andrews University. Uh, it was Bible in the Contemporary World, and it was a Master of Letters. And so this is a, a research degree in the UK. And the fascinating thing about this, this degree was uh, you would go for residential weeks, but then the rest of the semester could be done online. So it was a setup that accommodated my work schedule, but allowed me to foray into an educational schedule, uh, both for a graduate degree and then a PhD uh, that would allow me to transition into the higher education world. Uh, so I, I had a tremendous experience um, and felt like in five and a half years, I learned more in that time than perhaps any other period in my entire life. And being in Scotland, I wasn't simply challenged by the material, uh, but it was the experience and other people and just even how they understood the world and information and history and how it got absorbed into the work that they did at that time. And it was just absolutely fascinating. Plus, they really love coffee and tea. So uh, that, that went over very well with me. I've heard a lot about education there being different, quite a bit different than it is here. Was that change frustrating for you, or did it actually open you up to new ways of thinking? It was fantastic for me. The, the interesting thing about the, the European model was on day one, especially for my PhD, you're in writing up mode. And so it was really more about the ownership of the material. I had to understand certain concepts. And there's a story I like to tell that really captures this difference. Uh, when I was at St. Andrews, we had a semester with a professor named Richard Bauckham, and theologians will know who this is. He was one of the, the top New Testament scholars in the world, and he is a genius. And so we, we had the semester, and if, if you're not familiar, in UK, they have a 20-point scale. Uh, so instead of A through F, they have a 20-point scale. And no one will get higher than an 18 or 18.5 on this scale. And this is their uh, way to build in this kind of epistemic um, reality that there's no such thing as a perfect paper or assignment or project or whatnot. And so if, if you got around 17 or 18, that, that is top shelf. Well, we had five papers in this semester with Professor Bauckham, and my very first paper which was on consumerism, I believe. I had the highest grade I had in the entire program. It was like 17 or 17 and a half. And at that point, I thought, okay, I've got this figured out. I know the formula. I've got this down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ace the rest of these papers. Well, the next paper, the grade was a little lower, and the next one was a little lower, and the next one a little lower. So if, if this were put on a graph uh, from um, right to left, I mean, th this would just go straight down. And I was utterly confounded. I, could, I was putting forth the same quality. Um, I, I followed the same flow. And at the end of the semester, we got to have a feedback session with the professor. And I immediately shot up my hand. And I'm sure I sounded like an obnoxious American. <laughs> but I said, I, I followed your instructions to a T. And I did everything I did in my first paper and all of the subsequent papers. Why did these go down? he probably just got annoyed at me going on and on. And he finally just kind of interrupted me and said, you know, if you didn't like the grade you got on your paper, it's because you didn't dazzle me. I 
thought, what in the world? I'm, I'm a banker and you're a, you know, a renowned theologian and how am I supposed to dazzle you? And uh, so I was, I was offended by that remark at the time. Years later, though, I got it. I understood what he was saying because my paradigm was I followed the blueprint and I didn't get the product, which is a very American way of thinking about education sometimes. What he was saying was, show me originality. Show me thinking that does not follow a blueprint. Show me critical processing. Show me problem solving. Show me creative, nuanced ways of articulating your argument. Dazzle me. And that was not what I was doing. Uh, I was following the blueprint I had thought uh, would secure me a high grade thereafter. So that was very eye-opening for me. But I've come to deeply respect that. And moreover, I think that the world we are moving in is frankly a dazzle world. Uh, Economists tell us we're moving outside of a a manufacturing economy, and many have called it something like a service economy. I've even heard a creativity economy, an information economy. And so our education needs to pivot with that. And my experience overseas was a wonderful example of what that could and should look like. Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Asbury President Dr. Kevin Brown. Our hope is that each episode will enrich you in your life journey. If you have suggestions for future guests or topics, please email us at belong at asbury.edu. That's belong at asbury.edu. In our next episode, we'll hear about the pilgrimage that took Dr. Brown from Scotland to Anderson University and here to Asbury. Join us for that conversation next time on Belonging and Becoming.